everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Matthew Algio on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, The True Story of a Great American Road Trip. and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Matthew Algio on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, The True Story of a Great American Road Trip. Well, Memorial Day is coming up, and maybe you're going to take a road trip yourself. In 1953, uh, Harry and Bess Truman decided to do the same with Pretty remarkable results. Uh, it's hard to imagine an ex-president today deciding simply to take off on an unescorted road trip across the United States to uh, meet the people. But that's what Harry and Bess did in 1953, and Matt does a really terrific job of chronicling their journey. I really enjoyed talking to him today, and I bet that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very good. How are you doing? As I was, I'm, very, I'm very good, thank you. You know, it's actually beautiful here in Iowa. The springs in Iowa, springs and summers, are they make the winter, uh, they make up for the winter. I guess that's what I'd say. Yeah, they make up for the winter. And you're in Maryland, is that right? Yeah, I'm in, actually in, in, in far western Maryland. Far, I'm in uh, Frostburg, Maryland. Frost, is that near the Cumberland Gap? Yeah, it is. Actually, Cumberland is uh, oh, just about 10, 15 miles down the road to the east of here. Yeah, the only reason I... Um, know anything about the Cumberland Gap is that there's a Grateful Dead song that it appears in, and um, and you mentioned, talk about it in your book. <laughs> so, what, grateful, what Grateful Dead song is it in? Uh, it's, there's a Cumberland Blues, I believe, oh, okay, off Working yeah. Man's Dead. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I'm a little bit of, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that I know that, but yeah. I do. I should I should tell our listeners that we're talking to. Matthew Algio today, and we will be discussing his really terrific book, uh, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, The True Story of a Great American Road Trip. And so what takes you to Maryland? Are you on a Great American Road Trip right now? I am on a little bit of a road trip. I'm actually on a book tour right now, right. generally tra- uh, retracing uh, the route uh, that I describe in the book, and the, the road trip that Harry and Bess Truman took in the summer of 53. So I'm going back over that route again. This is about the fourth time I've, uh, <laughs> I've done the trip. Uh, but, but that's actually kind of nice because I've, I've met people over the course of the of the couple years of researching and writing the book, mm-hmm. and so it's, I'm, I'm actually seeing some old friends by this right? point. Well, yeah, great. it's a lot of fun. Well, yeah, I mean, I've read the book, as you know. It's a terrific book. I, re- I really, really enjoyed it. I'm used to kind of reading uh, hardcore academic history because I'm an academic historian, so I'm usually delighted when I find a book like this, which weaves sort of your own personal experiences in with Truman's Road Trip. It's also, I should say, a, a, a really wonderfully chosen topic because it, um, by force of that terrifically chosen example, brings to light the differences between now and then. Because, as we'll say, I'm sure in the course of the interview, just imagining someone like Barack Obama doing something like this. In fact, it's just impossible to imagine it. Yeah, it is. It's one of those stories, you're right. It's sort of, it's hard to believe that this was as recent as it was. Yeah, I, I agree really. completely. I, I was, I was, I was, um, I heard you on, on the radio, actually, you were doing an interview there, and, and you, you were talking a little about it, and I thought, you know, that's just a fantastically chosen topic, because it really does bring to light the, the difference between then and now in such a stark way. But we'll talk about that in a second. First, I want you 
to um, tell us about yourself, you know, where you grew up and where you, that, that business. Well, I'm, I'm originally from Philadelphia, uh, the youngest of seven, and uh, went to college at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia where I studied folklore. And uh, you might uh, be surprised to learn folklore is not a very lucrative um, <laughs> profession. So uh, when I got out of college, I actually started uh, working in public radio. Uh, public broadcasting is where the people with the really useless liberal arts degrees go. Uh, that's, that's where we end up. And uh, I've been working uh, in public radio, mostly at uh, local public radio stations. I've worked in Seattle, Minnesota, was in St. Louis. I worked in Maine for a while. And uh, I worked most recently at um, at Marketplace, which is a business news program. I listen to uh, it. I listen to it often. Okay. Good, good. And uh, so I worked there for a couple of years, uh, 2003 to 2005. And it was during that time that my wife actually took the Foreign Service exam and passed it. And uh, in 2005, she was hired by the State Department. And for our first assignment, we were sent to Bamako which I'm sure you know. No, is I don't. The, what is that? It's the capital of Mali, okay. which is in West Africa. Uh -huh. Mali is where uh, Timbuktu is. Yes. Uh, so uh, so we were sent to Mali for two years, and that's actually where I, I had time to pull out the old ideas folder, <laughs> <laughs> stories I'd done over the past 10 or 15 years that I really liked and uh, thought I might have a chance to dig a little deeper into since I had plenty of time on my hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how I ended up actually researching, uh, starting the process of writing this book. Mm -hmm. Is this the first book that you've written then? Actually, no. Uh, the first book I wrote uh, was called Last Team Standing. That was a book about the 1943 oh, yeah. the 43 merger right of the Steelers mm -hmm. and the Eagles. They became the Steagles. And uh, this was because the NFL was so short of players at the time. Mm -hmm. So right. for this book, I moved 10 years, 10 years ahead to 1953. So, mm -hmm. so slowly working my way towards the present. Yeah, and so how did you uh, encounter this particular topic, that is, of uh, Harry and Bess Truman's yeah, road trip? I was actually working in St. Louis uh, in 1998 and uh, produced a radio documentary on the 50th anniversary of the 1948 Whistle Stop campaign, you know, the famous campaign Truman uh, defeated Thomas Dewey. And I went out to the Truman Library in Independence, and in the basement of the library there, it's very cool, the Truman Library is awesome, but in the basement they actually have a display. I think it's still there. They have a couple of his cars. I have no idea how they actually got them in the basement, but there they are. And uh, there was a display case that had some ephemera with his driver's license and the registration card and that sort of thing. And in there was just a little newspaper clipping that had a picture of him filling up his car. And the clipping explained it was the summer of 1953. And it said something like, happy, Harry leisurely motoring eastward and explained that he and Bass were taking this uh, long road trip that summer. And so uh, that's when I first heard of the story. And then, you know, over the years, I kind of looked out for it whenever I would pick up a Truman biography and see what was written and and uh, sort of began slowly collecting information. And then uh, finally, it was only just about three years ago that I, I really had a chance to kind of do my own primary research and go back to the library and retrace the trip a little bit and really try to find out what was there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so why don't we um, just talk about Truman well, let's talk about uh, Harry and Bess, since they were both on the trip, uh, and and the remarkable adventure. How? how um, let me just ask you to set the stage a little bit. What, what did people think of Harry Truman when he left office? Uh, not much. Yeah. <laughs> his, uh, his approval rating when he left office was right around 22 percent, which is 
roughly where George W. Bush's, Bush's approval rating uh, was at the end of his presidency. It's interesting. I've read a few things that kind of try to analyze this whole concept of the approval rating, and there is there's one theory that Truman's approval rating was probably actually much lower than that, but that at that time people still held a, held the presidency in a, in a kind of uh, respectful awe or something and would never say they didn't approve or would never say they felt negatively about the person who was president mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. So in a way, his, the 22 might actually be inflated uh, higher than it actually was. But in any event, he was not very popular when he left office. Of course, the, the Korean War was, was his uh, his issue, um, the one that accounted uh, most mostly for his unpopularity when he left office. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny, he, he, he over the course of his retirement, and if George W. Bush is looking for an example, Truman's a, a good one to follow, because by the time Truman died in the in 1972, uh, he was consistently voted in in the Gallup polls one of the most respected men in America. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was quite a it was quite a turnaround for him in retirement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when he uh, left office, he decided to go back to independence. Uh, was that an unusual thing for a president to do to go back to the plow, so to say? Well, it was, it, it was, but Harry didn't really have much choice. Um, you know, on inauguration day, January 20th, 1953, Eisenhower was sworn in, and that afternoon the Secret Service drove Harry and Bess to Union Station in Washington and shook their hands, said goodbye. Ex-presidents got no Secret Service protection at that time, mm -hmm. and they put them on the train back to Independence. Now, there, there were rumors or stories that he might go to Key West. He had, he had vacationed there a lot when he was president, or that he might move to New York or Connecticut to be near their daughter, uh, Margaret. Margaret Truman lived in New York at the time. But the fact of the matter was that uh, Harry and Bess really couldn't afford to go anywhere except independence. They didn't have a lot of money in the bank. In fact, Harry had, had to take out a, uh, a loan from a bank before he left Washington. And uh, their only income, since ex-presidents also didn't receive pensions at the time, their only income was $112 a month. That was his uh, army pension from his service in World War One. And so they were quite, I mean, they were on a fixed income. And, and so the house in Independence, which had been in Best Truman's family and had been owned by her mother until the year before, uh, her mother had died in 1952. And after her mother died, Harry and Bess actually bought out uh, Bess's uh, two brothers. Mm -hmm. And so they owned the house outright uh, in, in, in Independence. And it was the only house Harry Truman had ever owned and, and would ever own in his life. And so their, their options were fairly limited about where they could go. And so they, they returned home. And I, I think part of it did appeal to Truman's sense of, of you know, he, he, wanted, he never forgot where he had come from and where he was going back to. He often said this. And so it, it did appeal, I think, to something of, of his sense of, of, of returning to normal life. Um, becoming a plain private citizen, as he liked to say. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they didn't have a lot of choice. They yeah. really didn't have a lot of options when, when they left office. When yeah. he left office. I was thinking back, I, I guess, and again, I'm not an American historian and um, don't know a lot about presidential history, but Johnson, if I recall, went back to Texas and mm -hmm. grew his hair long and mm -hmm. kind of became a hippie. I don't exactly know what he did, but other than Johnson, I couldn't think of anybody that really... Um, Went back home. Eisenhower didn't go back to Kansas, I think. No, uh, no. I mean, I think in the early, you know, really, if you go back to sort of the 18th and 19th century presidents, there you see it a lot more. That the ideal was that you would return to your estate, mm -hmm. and the president would return to his estate, and uh, 
you know, uh, Benjamin Harrison went back to Indianapolis and and, and practiced law, and, and uh, so you, you you did see it a lot. Uh, I think in the earlier, um, you know, in the earlier part of American American history, but more recently, uh, yeah, you're right. You don't see it, especially since Truman. We haven't we haven't seen it too much. Um, Johnson's an interesting case. Johnson only lived four years mm-hmm. uh, after he left office. In fact, he. He died after what would have been the day after inauguration day. If he had served another term, mm-hmm. uh, it w- wouldn't have been the day after he left office that he died. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Now, uh, what happened was the ex-presidency has changed so much, and ex-presidents. And I talk about this in the book, but they sort of become their own little corporations under mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they need a headquarters, and you can't work out of the house of independence. Well, Harry, as you say in the book, Harry didn't exactly work out of the House of Independence. What do, how did he set himself up? What did he plan yeah. to do? Well, his first order of business was just dealing with all the mail he got. Um, he, he had a policy of answering every piece of mail he received, and he got about a 1,000 letters a day when he first left office. And he, of course, was responsible for all the postage himself. Um, and just to handle the mail and his other you know, appointments and correspondence, he, he rented an office in Kansas City in the Federal Reserve Building and hired two women who had actually worked with him in the White House, and they came to uh, Kansas City to be secretaries for him. And so he had a small office with uh, the two receptionists, and he went into the office. He usually drove himself uh, from Independence to Kansas City. It's only a 10-mile drive, and, uh, and went into the office and answered mail. Uh, but the cost of answering the mail was one of the things that really, really bugged him. It was, it was $10,000 a year. Uh, his first year out of office, it was about $10,000. The postage alone at the time, a stamp was three cents. And he, he, he really felt that he, he felt he deserved a, a, some sort of compensation because he wouldn't be on the hook for any of this if he hadn't been president. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also thought it was a matter of fairness, too. At the time, uh, congressmen got pensions. Federal judges got pensions, admirals got pensions, generals got pensions. Everybody got pensions except the president. Uh, Harry, Harry actually left Congress one year too early. He left Congress in '45, and then Congress didn't approve pensions for itself until '46. Mm-hmm. So he had he had uh, he had bad timing in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did um, did was it the case that he so he really had no income but his but his army pension then really, I'm really none. Yeah, that- he, he he did as soon after he left office in February of '53 he did sign a book deal uh-huh. and uh, he got a big advance six hundred thousand dollars. I mean this was a huge yeah that's a lot of money advance in 1953. The average worker was making about four thousand um, dollars. But speaking as someone who has received a book advance considerably smaller. <laughs> Uh, still, I can say that they never go as far as you think they're going to go, and uh, that was definitely Harry's the case. Uh, Harry's case because, first of all, that six hundred thousand dollar advance was taxed as income at sixty seven percent. Wow, uh, that was the tax rate in nineteen fifty three. Now it's interesting, a uh, little sidebar here, but a few years earlier, uh, Dwight Eisenhower had gotten six hundred thousand dollars to write his memoirs, and the IRS, which you know at the time Truman was president, the IRS decided that uh, Eisenhower could claim that uh, not as income, but as a capital gain. Mm-hmm. And capital gains were taxed at only 25%, not mm-hmm. 67%, because the IRS reasoned that uh, Eisenhower was a general, not a writer by profession, so it wasn't income, it was a capital gain. When Truman went to the IRS, of course, now Eisenhower's president, and asked for this same arrangement, the IRS said no. And uh, this did nothing to improve relations between Eisenhower and Truman, which were frosty at that point. 
uh, to begin with. So out of that big advance, two-thirds of it went to the government. And, and out of the rest, he had to hire, uh, you know, an army of researchers, stenographers, ghostwriters, or something like 12 people ended up ghostwriting his memoirs, as well as maintain all the other office expenses that he had uh, uh, with the office, with the rent at the office in Kansas City and the salaries and the other expenses. And years later, he would he would estimate that out of that uh, big $600,000 advance, he had only netted $37,000. So it really didn't uh, it really didn't amount to as much as he had hoped for, and uh, really did not do much to alleviate the uh, financial the the financial strain that he felt in in the early years after leaving the White House. Mm And he spent that thirty-seven thousand on postage. Uh, he uh, um, so he, what about uh, you know? Again, I think that a lot of listeners are going to be interested in this. I know the answer because I've read the book, but I'd like to hear it. Uh, hear you explain this uh, today. You know, people like Bill Clinton go and give commencement speeches for two hundred and fifty thousand bucks a pop. Uh, mm-hmm. it, w- um, didn't Truman do any of that? Well, he he had what I guess we would now consider a rather quaint notion of being an ex-president, and he didn't think it was appropriate to do anything that would, in his opinion, commercialize the presidency. So he received a ton of business offers, many very lucrative, most very questionable. I mean, uh, there was a chain of clothing stores that wanted him to be a sales manager for $100,000 a year. There was a guy that wanted to put out a brand of soap with his name on it, Truman's Soap. Um, And he, he refused all of these offers. He didn't think it was appropriate for him to cash in on his status as a former president, and this extended even to speeches. He would accept an honorarium to cover expenses. Anything beyond that, he would donate to the fund for building his library, but he would not accept extravagant speaking fees, and he wouldn't take any job that appeared to make it look like he was cashing in. He wouldn't take seats on corporate boards, for instance. So he had all these opportunities to cash in, uh, but he passed on them, and, you know, this is something that uh, a precedent that has not survived, I guess we could say. God, it's so decorous of you. <laughs> you are running for political office, are you? No, I was as a diplomat. Yeah, that is so. That is really very diplomatic. No, I was going to say, you know, the guy Clinton is just rapacious with this stuff. Uh, but and and he, um, but I guess the difference is, you know, uh, Harry Truman was was uh, trying to live a private life, and Bill Clinton is trying to save the world, and it costs I, a lot of money to save the world. I guess, you no, know, it's funny because uh, really the last president to follow Truman's example was the one, one of the guys he hated, which is, who was Nixon. Um, Nixon made most of his money from writing books. Um, and even uh, at some point in the 1980s, I know he, he jettisoned the Secret Service detail and hired his own, uh, his own security detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was really the last president to to kind of refuse to just go and cash in. Gerald Ford was the first. He was the first ex-president to just uh, take seats on corporate corporate boards, mm-hmm. really, really work the, the speaking circuit to, to, to make money. Um, and he was he was not ashamed of it, and he had every right to do it. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, he he was a private citizen, so he could do he could do as he wished. But uh, that that was kind of the turning point right there. And since then, you see uh, presidents, um, especially with the speaking fees, yeah. um, really can rake it in. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a lot of dough to hear Bill Clinton talk. So let's talk about the um, the actual trip itself. Uh, he uh, 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 Truman and and Bess come back and they settle in. And uh, at some point, um, uh, Harry says they should go on a, a road trip. Uh, what was the pretext for this trip? Well, he had bought he, he bought a car in February of '53 after he got this big uh, uh, advance for the book, 
Uh, he loved cars, and he hadn't owned one, obviously, since, since he'd, he'd uh, assumed the presidency. In fact, when he got back to independence, he was borrowing his brother-in-law's car. So, obviously, that, that wouldn't last too long. He had to buy his own car. And uh, so he bought a Chrysler New Yorker, a big, shiny, black Chrysler New Yorker. Now, a lot of it was made at the time of the fact that he bought his own car. I went to the Truman Library and found some correspondence between him and Chrysler, and it's obvious he paid much less than the list price, maybe as little as a dollar. Uh, but nonetheless, he got a Chrysler New Yorker, and he loved this car. It was a very modern car at the time. It even had, uh, power, had power steering, power brakes. It had an early automatic transmission. Uh, it, it, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty styling, um, and he loved it. It chrome wire wheels, very flashy. So people saw him, you know, driving around town. They knew right away. And uh, around this time, it would have been a couple months later, I guess, he got an invitation to speak in Philadelphia at a convention of the Reserve Officers Association. Uh, uh, Harry was an Army Reserve officer, mm-hmm. and I uh, had actually helped found this association. And so he thought it'd be a good, good good uh, event to attend. He'd see some old friends. He would make his first big speech as ex-president. Uh, but pretext is a good word. In your question, I, I do think it was just an excuse for him to take a long road trip. He loved taking road trips. And when he was in the Senate, he and Bess drove between Missouri and Washington all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would drive to Washington for the beginning of the session and drive back home at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he knew the route well. He had this fancy new car with all the gadgets. He said he wanted to give it a real tryout. And so he went to Bess and proposed this idea to her, and Bess was skeptical uh, about this whole idea. Harry, for some reason, just seemed to think he could go travel incognito. Uh, he'd like nobody would recognize him or something. He just didn't think it would that, be that big a deal. Uh, Bess was a little more realistic about things, uh, but Harry was fairly adamant in, uh, in uh, pushing for this trip. And Bess finally agreed on the condition that he not drive faster than 55 miles an hour. And Harry had a lead foot. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. The guy drove too fast. Everybody agreed. And uh, he, uh, he did agree to the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit because he really wanted to take the trip. You know, at the time, in Missouri, there were no speed limits. Hmm. I mean, this was quite a I think the, I think the signs in Missouri actually said, drive safe and prudent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're on the honor system for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for speeds at the time. So it was quite a concession for Harry to agree to a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Uh, but he did. And uh, so the trip was on, and he planned it quite meticulously, like he planned anything in his life. And he got the roadmaps out and put them on the dining room table. And he, like I said, he knew, he knew the route a little bit. He'd done it uh, when they were in the Senate. So he had a couple favorite places he liked to stop. And so he uh, plotted out the route from Independence to Washington, where they met some old friends. And uh, then he went up to Philadelphia to deliver the speech, then up to New York to see Margaret for about eight nights, and then back home to Independence. So mm-hmm. that was the trip, uh, 19 days, 2,500 miles, mm-hmm. carrying the best room and just driving themselves around the country. So let's talk a little bit about this car. You drove one of these things, correct? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and you talk about it in the book, quite comically, I should say. So what is it like to drive this beast? Well, it is uh, it is a behemoth. Um, uh, I forget, what is it, 4,500 pounds or something? I forget what that, how it's... But what, what was interesting to me is that... Um, you, you could really tell that they hadn't worked out quite all the kinks on these new gadgets. Uh, the power steering was especially striking to me. That it, it was fairly easy to steer, but it wasn't very responsive. Um, so you'd move the wheel, and it would take a second for the car to catch up with where you wanted the car to go. Uh, um, the same way with the power brakes. Uh, you know, it took you—you push the brakes down, and it seemed to take a second. Oh, the car wants to stop. 
Um, so it was really an interesting experience to drive in a little car like this. Also to see, you know, there were no seatbelts. Mm-hmm. I mean, this car had no safety features whatsoever. And this just big steering wheel, like with the three spokes in front of you, that would neatly slice you into three pieces <laughs> if, you, if you ever rear-ended anything. I mean, it was just it was interesting to see the, the physical, you know, how you felt inside that compartment there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it must have been, you know, it's just hard to put. It. And, you know, who knows how how they felt for them? It was state of the art. Yeah. You know, um, but for us, you just feel vulnerable in there. No, I remember. I remember myself driving. Um, you know, things like a. I'm. I'm. I'm not really of uh, Harry Truman's vintage, but I remember driving cars with power steering that were made in the '60s. Uh, Delta 88, I think, was one of them, and that used to have something we would call play in the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but that meant yeah. you could move the steering wheel around and nothing would happen. All right, a little play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so this, yes, you know, huge car. Now, one of the things I, I learned from your book uh, and was quite glad to learn uh, was that. I always thought of Harry Truman as your sort of typical, your stereotypical, tight-lipped, well, tight-lipped is not the right word, but, but almost prim Midwesterner, you know, a man of few words, all of which had great effect, um, mm-hmm. and also a, a very humble in a weird sort of way. But uh, the impression I got from your book was that um, Harry was kind of a dandy, that, that yeah. especially the way he dressed. Yeah. He, well, you know, he, he had owned a, a haberdashery. Uh, in Kansas City, after World War One, he got back to uh, went back to Independence, and he had a uh, an army buddy named Eddie Jacobson, and they opened a haberdashery in downtown Kansas City. A haberdashery, of course, is a men's clothing store. I know you know that. The only mm-hmm. reason I say that is after about three three uh, readings I've done, people have come up to me afterwards and said, "What is a haberdashery?" Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but so he loved clothes. He loved men's clothes. Look, they packed eleven suitcases. For this <laughs> I mean, the guy never went anywhere without a suit. He always looked sharp. And, uh, yeah, it was funny. You're right. He didn't he, – he, uh, he, 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 he came across as the rube only when it was to his advantage. You know, he was really the he, – he's the rube that goes to the city and then fools all the city slickers. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's who Harry Truman was. He, mm-hmm. he, he made a career out of being much smarter than anybody thought he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was always underestimated in that regard. But yeah, he, he, he was a flashy dresser and he, uh, and, and you know, look, part of it too was that he liked the attention. He liked being president. He, mm-hmm. he, he loved people. He liked being around people. He liked being the center of attention. And part of the trip too was he, he must have missed that. He must have missed that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So do you believe then that, you know, I, I quite agree with everything you said. Uh, he's, he's what my um, mother would call a clothes horse. I don't know if people mm-hmm. use that expression anymore, but sure. he always, you have lots of nice pictures in the book and he always really looks nice. I mean, nicer than anyone you ever see on the street today. He, yeah. he just has complete what I would call costumes, you know, down to the two-tone shoes that match the fabric in his, you know, jacket and the whole the, deal. I mean, it's the yeah. chief peeking out of the breast pocket. Yeah, it, on he, that. he has spent a lot of time thinking about the way he looks, and he yeah. looks great, and so does Bess. But um, I, I guess one thing I was going to say is about the attention. Do you think he was being disingenuous when he said, uh, you That's know, I, I. <laughs> I don't, I don't want the attention. I just want to go. Yeah. If that, if if I could go, if 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 I could ask Harry Truman one question, that's what it would be. Did you really think? Did you really think that it wouldn't be a big deal this trip, or was it just an excuse to kind of bask again in in in, in the spotlight? I think the answer is somewhere in between. Um, I I really do, I do think he didn't appreciate the effect it would have on other people. For instance, 
Uh, the first night of the trip, they drove uh, from Independence through Hannibal. They stopped for lunch. And then they went to Decatur, Illinois, and they stayed at a motel in Decatur. Well, when the chief of police found out, as he, of course, did within minutes, that Harry Truman had checked into a motel in his town, the chief of police was scared to death mm -hmm. that something might happen to Harry and Beth Truman while he was in Decatur. Mm -hmm. And he sent two cops to the motel right away to just keep an eye on Harry and Beth Truman. As long as they're in, De as long as they're in Decatur, you don't let anything happen to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that and Harry protested, of course, you know, I don't need anybody, I don't need any of this. They gave him a police escort to go to the diner for dinner. I mean, I, I really don't think he expected that, that kind of circus. Mm -hmm. Now, when he went to Frederick, Maryland a couple of days later, and uh, by now word had gotten out about the trip, and there were a couple of wire service photos and reports, and reporters had found out about it, and they contacted Margaret, and Margaret said that uh, they could meet her mom and dad, Harry and Beth, when they stopped for gas in Frederick, Maryland. And so when Harry and Beth pulled up in Frederick, there were all these reporters there, and uh, Harry greeted them like long-lost brothers, according to one report. <laughs> I mean, he was not—he was not sad to see them, mm -hmm. uh, and so clearly he enjoyed that—that that kind of attention as well. So I think the answer is somewhere in between. He—he he knew people were going to see him. He, I think he got it—he got a kick out of people doing the double take and saying, "Are you Harry Truman?" Um, but at the same time, I don't think he did really understand the kind of impact it could have on the people they came across in different ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. He does really like the double take, though, because you have lots of nice quotes in which he says, you know, I thought I could kind of get away with, you know, buying whatever I was buying at the store, but then, gosh darn it, he recognized me. Right, right. And the gosh darn it really seems a little dis disingenuous, you know, like he, of course he recognized me, I'm Harry Truman, you know. Right. Well, one thing I was interested in, in, in learning from the book was that there were no, um, and this, again, demarks a difference between now and then. Once it did get out, and it did get out immediately, I mean, the whole thing blew up immediately, that people knew he was on the way, uh, that there were, um, there were no real protesters. I mean, today, if George Bush decided to drive his pickup truck, you know, to get a quart of milk, he would, uh, you know, he would encounter protesters. Yeah, and this is something interesting. I, I really did not find any evidence of uh, protests or even of people, um, you know, saying negative things to him. I mean, uh, part of it was the element of surprise, I think, that people, he, he would show up unexpectedly. People didn't expect to see him. So in a lot of cases, they weren't prepared or there were, you know, there was no advance notice for, for any protest, that sort of thing. Um, and, and the other part of it is, I think it was just a sign of the times, maybe, um, that he, as he was out of office by then, he was retired. And, and it was, there was a certain deference that, that was accorded him uh, in, in his position at that time that maybe would not be accorded an ex-president who tried to do something like this today. Now, having said that, it's also interesting, too, without the barrier of, of the Secret Service, uh, Harry would engage people. I mean, he, he, would, uh, he, would, he would initiate conversations mm -hmm. with people. And so he was able to use his very considerable charm, I think. I mean, the guy was a people person. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. And he could talk to anybody about anything. And I think he had a very disarming way about him. And I think that went a long way towards this, towards the reception that he got, uh, which was, by and large, it was favorable. Now, the columnists, the newspaper columnists, weren't all favorable about Harry dri driving around the country. And what, what did they say? Well, I mean, the, the columnists that, that, hadn't, uh, uh, that hadn't cared for him when he was in the White House were... Uh, couldn't abide this, that Harry was just this carefree guy driving around the country when he'd left 
Eisenhower with this huge deficit. I forget what it was. I don't even know if it was a million dollars. <laughs> you know, like we could write a check for it today. Yeah. Um, but uh, but at the time, still, the newspapers were divided pretty pretty rigidly along uh, political lines. And so the Republican papers just, just couldn't stand this, that carefree Harry returning to Washington. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you didn't find any evidence of anybody except for these newspaper columnists who are sort of professionals at this kind of thing. Anybody who came up to him on the street, no. And said, I, you know, I my son died in Korea and I, you know, no, you're a bastard. I didn't. I did not. That's I really didn't. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, that could be due largely to the fact that he, his agenda or his itinerary was not necessarily publicized in advance. So uh-huh. if there was somebody who really wanted to, um, it would have been hard for them to find. It would have had to have been a chance encounter. Now, that's not to say it didn't happen. I find it hard to believe there was nothing negative uh, yeah. said toward him, but as far as finding something recorded, I, I wasn't yeah. able to. Yeah, I see what you mean. So let's talk a little bit about driving across the country then. Um, you didn't just hop on the interstate and go, but uh, it, it was actually quite different. Maybe you could just say a few words about what it meant to drive across half yeah. of the country in, in, in the 1950s. Well, I, I actually, uh, what I had to do just to find out the route they took, I went on to uh, eBay. Mm-hmm. And bought road maps from 1952, 53, 54. What a great idea! And because it was in, because I had to reconstruct their route, and I knew basically where they had gone. And he had written a little bit about it, and there were other reports in the wire services and the larger papers. Uh, but yes, this is three years before Eisenhower signs the Interstate Highway Bill, so there are no interstate highways at all. It's all U.S. highways, and uh, most of them are two lanes. And all of them go right through the center of the towns that they go to. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, of course, the interstates go around, and even the U.S. highways usually, they'll go around the town. And if you see the old, what will it say? It'll say alternate or business route. Mm-hmm. That's usually the original route of the of the highway when it would go right down Main Street. Mm-hmm. So when Harry got in the car and uh, headed west on June 19th of 53, uh, he took uh, Route 24 east. From uh, from Independence, and he took that most of the way across Missouri, and then he picked up 36 in Monroe City, and then took that into Hannibal and stopped uh, right at the intersection of Highway 36 and 61 uh, for lunch at a diner there called Osborne's. And uh, if you do the trip today, it's much harder to follow because in Hannibal, well, first of all, they, there's an interstate now, but even the U.S. highways 61 and uh, 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 36 and 61 intersect, but, but at a completely different place mm-hmm. uh, because they've kind of moved everything north of town, um, which is why the businesses that you see where where Harry and Beth stayed now, uh, none of them are there. They yeah. didn't survive after the after the uh, after the U.S. highways were moved. It's interesting when he got to Hannibal, he parked in the uh, parking lot of an ice cream stand, and uh, they got out and started walking next door to the diner, and the guy who owned the ice cream stand didn't like the diner's customers using his parking lot <laughs> and his uh, his 12 year old daughter was working the working the window that day and so when she saw the car pull up and saw the Trumans get out and walk next door she called back to her dad hey dad Harry Truman just parked out front do you want me to have him move the car uh, so uh, the uh, Bud Tobin who was the guy who owned the ice cream stand was uh, quite surprised to see that it was in fact Harry Truman and he did not make him move the car mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's he had lots of encounters like that though. He gets pulled over by the police at some point. Is that right? Yeah, on the way home on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, yeah, right. he gets pulled over uh, by a, 
I, I love it. Uh, I love the cop's name, Manly Stampler. Manly Stampler pulls him over. Yeah, that's no, Manly Stampler. Couldn't imagine pulling over the president. But what were um, what were roads made of then? They weren't they weren't asphalt yet, were they? Yeah, actually they were. Most of them were macadam. Oh, okay. By this point, um, it's interesting though that there was a they experimented with a lot of different surfaces um, before they before they finally kind of found the perfect um, uh, asphalt, which is the you know it, it's it melts at a relatively low temperature, mm-hmm. um, so you can pour it. Uh, they they even had steel roads they tried. Uh, all kinds of materials. The problem with the roads at that time was that they were in horrible shape. They've mm-hmm. been completely neglected during the war. I mean, during the war, you really couldn't travel anywhere anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the roads were pretty much in, in, in horrible shape, uh, particularly, um, you know, at, at between the end of the war and then there was a little boom there and then Korea, uh, so it went down again. So, and there weren't, the, the demand for materials always either to, to, the, to the war World War II or Korea or towards housing. And so there there really wasn't a, a real program to improve the roads until uh, Eisenhower came to office. Yeah, I don't think it's really – I don't think there's any place in the United States I've ever been except New Jersey, to be honest with you, where you can still see some of the way that roadsides on U.S. highways looked in the 1950s. And I don't know why in New Jersey it has survived, but I know that where I grew up in Kansas – that it was precisely, as you say, there was the U.S. highway that went through Wichita, and it went right downtown, and then they built a, a highway around Wichita, and then finally the interstate came, and, and that was that for the Wichita downtown, really. So one of the things that was interesting in the book I thought uh, that um, might it might be interesting for you to talk about is that, um, that, that there were chains of gas stations – at the time, in, in addition to independence, but there were no chains of motels. And in fact, motels themselves were kind of new. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, the motel was sort of grew up with the automobile, and I think the, I think it was in the 1920s that the first motel opened. It was in uh, San Luis Obispo, California, which is about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And uh, the guy hit up on the idea of building cottages, and you could just pull a car right up and then rent the cottage for $5 a night or whatever it was. And so people on their way between Los Angeles and San Francisco stopped there, and soon the idea took root, and it really expanded rapidly. In fact, even during the Depression, uh, there's a there's an architectural magazine that talks about how the only growing se- the only growing segment of the manufacturing uh, building industry is motels <laughs> during the mm-hmm. Depression. They, they're just proliferating. And so here by the early 1950s, we really have kind of a golden age of motels in America, and there are just thousands of them, and they're all owned pretty much independently. Families own them, and they all have quirky names, and, and they some of them have big art deco, you know, a spaceship out front, something to get your attention, to get you off the road and get you to stay at the motel. Well, what had happened was the year before Harry and Beth took this trip to the East Coast, there was a Memphis businessman named Kemmons Wilson, and he took a trip to the East Coast as well with his family, a summer vacation. And uh, he and his wife had five children. And this was a considerable expense when you went to a motel at the time because they charged a $2 per child surcharge. So his $5 room was suddenly a $15 room. And uh, he didn't like this. And he also found that the quality of the motels varied widely. Uh, and some of them were pretty gross. And so when he got back to Memphis after this trip, he decided that he was going to build a, a motel but one that would provide amenities like air conditioning, 
television even. They would have a telephone in every room. There would be no charge for children under 12 who stayed with their parents. And he built the first one outside Memphis. Holiday Inn mm-hmm. is what it was. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he decided that he would have build one within uh, one drive, and he would never have to drive more than a day to find the next Holiday Inn. I think his goal was to build 500. Within 20 years, he had 2,000, yeah. and they were all over the world. And so, and that, you know, the Holiday Inn comes up, the interstate highways come, they build the Holiday Inns at the exits to the interstate, and then clustered around them now are all kinds of franchises, mm-hmm. uh, other motels, fast food restaurants. Ray Kroc is perfecting a way to make the perfect hamburger, mm-hmm. the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so this this all happens really in the mid to late 50s. It sort of explodes. And so Harry's trip in 53 takes place at kind of a, a, an interesting time where you're getting into the, the age of the, you know, another golden age of this one of the American automobile. Um, but before we really see the, uh, you know, franchise America take take hold. And, and you know, when you when you pull off of a pull off the interstate anywhere in America, apart from the topography, you could pretty much be anywhere. Mm-hmm. No, you know, that's... when you pull off, you, you got a Motel 6, yeah. you got the Red Roof, you got a McDonald's and Burger King. Yeah, that's um, right. So it wasn't like that at all, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I find that fascinating. Again, if you drive around New Jersey, I suppose there are other places in the United States where you can see it. You can see a lot of independently owned hotels and, and a lot of sort of um, diners and that kind of thing, and which is what well, he, he it, must It's funny, talking. though. In, in uh, you know, I did the trip in Missouri, and when you actually take the route he took, which is if you take 24, Route US 24 across, and it's across northern the northern half, the northern tier of Missouri running, you know, west to east, mm-hmm. there's really not much there in terms of chain uh, motels, fast food restaurants. It's mostly mm-hmm. small diners, and it's mostly the few motels you see. I mean, there aren't even any traffic lights there. Now, having said that, Missouri is currently building, uh, uh, expanding uh, Highway 36 all the way across the top from Hannibal to uh, uh, what's the city where the Pony Express begins? Uh, uh, St. Joseph's? St. Joseph's, yes. Yeah. It's going to be a four-lane uh, road all the way across, mm-hmm. which they designed to kind of pull traffic off of 70, mm-hmm. Interstate 70, which runs between Kansas City and St. Louis, which is to say, pretty soon that part of Missouri is going to be completely mm-hmm. covered by chains, mm-hmm. just like Interstate 70 is, but mm-hmm. but uh, there there were stretches where um, where I felt like you know if Harry if Harry and Bess were out there they they recognize parts of it bits and pieces anyway. Mm-hmm. So he he gets so let's like get him to Washington. He gets to Washington uh, mm-hmm. with Bess and uh, he stays there a, a few days, doesn't he? What does mm-hmm. he do in Washington? Does he go meet his old uh, buddies or? Yeah, yeah. He meets with his old cronies and he sort of tweaks uh, tweaks Eisenhower a little bit. He he holds a he holds a reunion of his cabinet. They have a big fancy dinner at the Mayflower Hotel, and uh, he uh, he says it's uh, it, it, it's uh, it's a it's the government in exile is meeting, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and really he just spends time in Washington, sort of catching up and 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 doing a lot of the things he had done when he was president, running from one appointment to another, answering the phone all day. He really seemed to uh, he really seemed to revel in it. It's funny when they had the uh, when they had his little cabinet meeting, the uh, government in exile, and they all assembled at the Mayflower for a big fancy dinner, and of course he sat at the head of the table, and all his former cabinet members sat around him, and it must have struck him that, you know, of all the people sitting at the table, he was the least well-off. I mean, all the cabinet members had gone on to take lucrative jobs in in the private sector, most of them either in law or in business, Um, and he was the one there stuck at the head of the table that 
really had fairly limited options in his retirement. Mm -hmm. So uh, so it was an interesting time for him in Washington. Eisenhower, uh, he Harry was famous for his morning walks. You know, he'd get up every morning and you know walk a mile at his army pace of 120 steps a minute. Uh, but he was very conspicuous in avoiding uh, the White House on his morning walks when he was in Washington. Mm -hmm. And Eisenhower, in fact, uh, was there for a few days, but then then went for the weekend out to the uh, uh, to the retreat in the, to the presidential retreat in the Maryland woods, which uh, had been known as Shangri-La, but Eisenhower had just named it for his grandson, called it Camp David. Camp David yeah. And uh, that's what we know today. Mm -hmm. So he didn't meet Eisenhower while he was there. No, he didn't. He said uh, Eisenhower didn't have time for every Tom, Dick, and Harry uh, who came to Washington. So he did not meet with Eisenhower That's funny. at that time. That's very funny. Very witty man there, Harry Turn. Very witty. Uh, so then he goes up to Philadelphia and gives his speech. What's his speech about? His speech was really railing against the Republicans for proposing cuts in defense spending. And this is one of those interesting things. And I'm not an expert at all in, in you know, the history of military spending or anything like that. Um, but uh, But it was interesting to me kind of uh, looking at how, how uh, the Republicans are generally not, haven't called for big, massive cuts in, in defense spending uh, in, in the past 20 to 25 years. But at that time, the philosophy was that uh, to basically to pay for tax cuts, you had to cut spending, and the military was a great place to cut it. What a weird, what a weird idea. You know, and, uh, uh, and, and what's funny is that uh, that Truman, as a Democrat, was the one who was opposed. So we should be increasing military yeah. spending. So it was a little topsy-turvy at the time. I, I should also say there was an interesting philosophy, though, that the Republicans had, which was, um, you know, with atomic weapons, you know, Eisenhower's philosophy was all the, all the firepower we unleashed uh, at Normandy on D-Day, I mean, basically three planes with atomic weapons could equal that. So it was a, a simple math equation to many Republicans that we can we don't need uh, we don't need men we don't need tanks we don't we have the bomb and, and so a lot of the a lot of the uh, the thinking behind the cuts was based on that philosophy mm -hmm. and so Truman went to uh, went to Philadelphia to the Reserve Officers Association and basically gave a speech that uh, uh, lambasted uh, Eisenhower and the Republicans for proposing such drastic cuts in the military, and what we needed was uh, muscular armed forces, or we risked uh, having atomic bombs fall on our homes. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it, was all, it was all very classic Truman yeah. with uh, hyperbole and everything, but mm -hmm. it didn't have much effect, actually. Yeah, I imagine not. So then uh, he didn't stay in Philadelphia long, uh, up to New York to visit Bess, is that right? Yes. Yeah, what the actually, heck? Well, what they did, actually, Harry took a train to Philadelphia, and then Margaret and Bess drove the car up to New York. Oh, okay. So Harry then took the train up to New York, met Margaret and Bess. Harry and Bess stayed at the Waldorf. They spent eight nights there. Mm -hmm. I was very curious about how he could afford that. Yeah, how did he afford that? Well, what happened was when the Waldorf found out he was coming east, the manager wrote him a letter offering him complimentary use of a suite. Mm. And uh, Harry wrote back and said he thought that was all right. <laughs> and so, uh, so Harry was not averse to uh, taking a, you know, mm -hmm. for all his uh, high-mindedness and not commercializing the presidency, some mm -hmm. gifts were just too good to pass up. Mm -hmm. So they spent eight nights at the Waldorf, and uh, they uh, they stayed in uh, 32A, I believe, was their suite. But uh, right below them in 31A was Herbert Hoover, and up on the 37th floor at the Waldorf was uh, Douglas MacArthur. Hmm. So there were three fairly large luminaries at the Waldorf at the same time. Uh, MacArthur and Hoover both lived there. 
And uh, I, I, I would love to have been at the meeting where they tried to, you know, they explained to the bellhops and the doormen and the room service people, like, you got to, don't let these guys get in the same elevator. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want Truman and MacArthur be riding the elevator up together. I was, uh, I, I was going to say, I always wondered about this, and I bet many people have. You know, you get these people, these luminaries and famous folks and bright lights, and they live in hotels. And I never understood how you could live in a hotel. What were these rooms like? Well, I, I'll tell you what. We, I, I, when I redid the trip, my wife and I went to the Waldorf. We did not get comped, um, <laughs> but we did we did get an upgrade, and we got upgraded to the Waldorf Towers, which is actually where Harry and Beth stayed. These are apartments. Mm-hmm. These are sumptuous apartments with 24-hour room service, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the apartment, I think, the apartment right above where Harry stayed is the apartment that. Uh, 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 the Cole Porter and then Frank Sinatra later lived there. Um, the rent is $100,000 a month. Mm. Um, so that gives you some idea of the kind of, mm-hmm. what kind of places these are. To call them a hotel even is a little, but you're right. At the, at the end of the day, you are living in a hotel, which is kind of odd. It is weird. You know, I don't, you know, especially MacArthur. I don't quite get that. I mean, he, I guess he had an army pension too, but, uh, it certainly couldn't foot, you know, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month. So that's, I, a good, I don't, that's, a good, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that. Hoover was rich because uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, Hoover made a lot of money in mining, I think. But yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And I never saw this whole hotel thing. I don't get it. I can tell you personally, and it's not like I'm living at the Waldorf, brother. But like, even after you know, two weeks here of. Motel 6, and I'm tired of it. Yeah, no, I get tired of it after about one day, to be honest yeah. with you. So I, I know just what you're saying. So anyway, so then, what was the – so best lived in New York, right? Margaret. Mar- and Margaret, daughter. what am I saying? Margaret, yeah, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Um, Margaret lived in New York. She was trying to start a career in television, uh-huh. and so Harry and Bess went to basically spend time with Margaret and go, and do some sightseeing. They, they, Harry had been there, of course, several times to New York, but they'd never really gone as – tourists. So they went to see the sites and, and that's what they did. They went to a couple of Broadway shows. They they went out to uh, all the trendy restaurants. They took cabs everywhere. He had the advantage of never having trouble uh, getting a cab to stop for him. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as Harry Truman would walk out and put his hand up to hail a cab, six of them would come mm-hmm. competing for the right to carry him. Uh, they went to the 21 Club, a famous restaurant in New York. And uh, while they were there having dinner, another famous guest, Thomas Dewey, came in. Mm-hmm. So presented some problem for the maitre d' to make sure they were seated far apart, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But really, they, they actually they spent time with Margaret and, and behaved pretty much like normal tourists do. He went to see the U.N. Uh, he hadn't been to the building yet, and, uh, and uh, so he toured the United Nations, uh, but really had a, it was a fairly private time that they had there. Was he mobbed? You know, he wasn't really mobbed. That was another interesting thing, doing the research. You know, we were talking before earlier, did anybody ha- harass him or hassle him? And and nobody really he wasn't really mobbed. I mean, they talk about people would people would recognize him and say hello, and people would always call him Harry, um, which is another odd thing. It's like I don't know if that'd be my first instinct if I saw a former president to say, "Hey, Jimmy," um, yeah. you know. But but people would say, "Hey, Harry. Hi, Harry. How you doing?" People would ask him for autographs. Um, but when he was on his walk, his morning walk, he didn't stop. Um, so if you wanted his autograph, you had to keep up with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. He would sign it while he walked. And so I think that maybe kept the big crowds from gathering around him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never seemed to mind the big crowds. And, uh, again, he, he had a personality that was really well-suited to this, uh, to a trip like this, actually. He, he, he didn't mind 
uh, he didn't mind people coming up to him. It didn't. It just didn't really bother him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was uh, you know uh, this is a bit of a digression, but uh, b- uh, uh, Margaret has always fascinated me. Uh, what 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 exactly um, became of her, and what I, you know again? What she was trying to get into television at this time, or yeah, she had been a singer for a while. Yeah. Harry famously wrote a letter to a critic who had said she wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. I think he said the critic would need a like a beefsteak for his eyes and a truss for down below or something. Mm-hmm. Um, she then went on to uh, to uh, to a very successful career as an author. She wrote mysteries set in mm-hmm. Washington, mm-hmm. Uh, usually murder mysteries, and uh, wrote those for many years. Hmm. And then she died uh, last year. Oh, really? Last year. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Wow. Uh, I, I contacted her. I'd been hoping when I started the research for the book, I was hoping to interview her, obviously, and so I contacted her eldest son, Clifton Daniel. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, you know and he explained that she was she was not well, but Clifton okay. and I have stayed in touch. And, okay. And, and he's he's been a nice guy. It's funny. I was actually uh, Truman's uh, uh, 125th birthday was May 8th, I think it was. But I happened to be in Independence, and they had a thing at the Truman Library, and I I was did a radio program with Clifton, and mm-hmm. and I asked Clifton, you know. Don't you ever wish that your grandfather had commercialized the presidency? <laughs> Me, just a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, and yeah. he gave a very diplomatic answer, but uh, but he said, "Yeah, we could have had another million or two in the yeah. bank." Right, exactly. So then uh, he uh, he he leaves New York, and and a rather strange thing happens, right? He kind of disappears. Is that right? Yeah, there are a couple gaps in there, and uh, really, when he he uh, actually eastbound, he goes. Clear across Ohio, he pretty much disappears for 12 or so in some hours. Then coming westbound, he, he disappeared as well. I did find out later he stopped in the town of Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, Little Washington, they call it, and, and spent a night there. But it was a Fourth of July weekend, and I guess the press just never caught the story. Um, and then actually driving westbound, he disappeared again a little bit in, uh, uh, in Illinois. Uh, so there are some segments of the trip where... Uh, it's, it's conceivable he did go incognito, um, that they stopped for dinner and nobody nobody recognized them, uh, which I, I like to think that maybe he got away with it yeah. a little bit here and there. Yeah, it would be nice to think. But you would also think that if you had uh, Harry Truman in your town on July 4th, uh, you might make a bit of a party <laughs> of it, you know? I mean, yeah. Well, well, what I did, when I retraced the trip, I would stop at each of the, you know, every big town along the route and go to the library and look up the microfilm Uh around that time period. And inevitably, if Harry stopped for gas, if he stopped at the motel, if he stayed at the hotel, if he, uh, you know, they stopped for lunch or stopped at the diner for, inevitably, somebody reported it to the local paper. And so you got, you got everything, how much he tipped. Mm-hmm. You know, who yeah. the waitress was, and he was and that's a, also how, how I was able to find some people who actually saw them on the trip. Which yeah, right. And he was a good tipper, I guess. That was one of the things that came. He was out. a pretty good tipper. He was pretty. In New York, they acted very surprised. You know, yeah. they, mm-hmm. they tipped the shoeshine guy a quarter. Uh-huh. Wow. So anyway, he hightails it across the country. I mean, he basically just they they, they just drive and spend the night, right, for the rest yeah. of the trip. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and, to, uh, they stayed with friends in Indianapolis. They mm-hmm. got with friends one night and. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, and then passed through St. Louis for dinner, and then he made it home to Independence on the 8th of July. Yeah, and then what happened? Well, it's funny. The trip did teach Harry that you can't, he's never going to be a plain private citizen again. And he wrote a letter to a friend where he complained about being unable to get from what he called the awful glare that shines in the White House. He just couldn't get away from it. Because mm-hmm. his friend had actually invited him to come out to Arizona 
uh, to visit him. And so he put a moratorium on long road trips, and they actually never took another long road mm-hmm. trip like this by themselves. Uh, they uh, they would take long trips, but usually they'd be fairly orchestrated, and mostly he would fly back to the East Coast to visit Margaret and later mm-hmm. with grandchildren. And then, of course, after the Kennedy assassination, Secret Service returned to their lives, and then for the rest of their lives, Secret Service accompanied them everywhere they went. Yeah, yeah. I imagine he didn't like that very much. But the uh, so did he ever? Um since we brought it up, since the door is open, did he ever supplement his income in any way, or did he continue to live on $112 a month? No, what happened was in early 58, he uh, he had to sell his family farm in Grandview, Missouri, which he owned with his brother and his sister. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it became a shopping center. It still is, Truman Corners. Wow. And uh, all they saved was the house. So it's very incongruous when you go there. It's just a little old, like, you know, mid-19th century farmhouse surrounded by McDonald's and Sam's yeah. Club. Um, but once that word got out that he had had to sell the farm, and he, he said he, he would have been on relief if he hadn't done it, that's when Congress finally was prompted to act and grant presidents, ex-presidents pensions of $25,000 a year plus 50000 for office expenses and unlimited franking privileges. Franking privileges, yeah. Yeah, important, yeah, especially important to Harry. So that, that ended Harry's uh, any financial distress that uh, that Harry might have been under. And... Uh, and uh, of course, got the ball rolling to where we are today, where yeah. the presidential pension is now equal to a cabinet-level officer's salary, which is yeah. almost $200,000, mm-hmm. practically unlimited office expenses, yeah. lifetime Secret Service protection, although that's being grandfathered out. George W. Bush only gets 10 years mm-hmm. of Secret Service protection. But, mm-hmm. yeah, quite a, different, uh, uh, quite a different financial scenario for an ex today than it was back then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and, and what, what did Harry do for the rest of his life? You know, Harry was still involved in politics. There were, there were, you know, when he first left the White House, there were stories that he might run for office again, if only because he needed the money. Um, and it's also worth noting, Harry was the last president without a. Uh, he only had a high school diploma. He didn't yeah. have any. He had a post-secondary degree, so he had no real experience. He didn't have any, you know, marketable skills. Uh, there was a there was a time where he considered applying for the Missouri bar. Uh, at the time in Missouri, you didn't need to go to law school. You mm-hmm. could just apply. Uh, to be admitted to the bar. And at the Truman Library, they have the application, his application, to, to join the Missouri Bar, and they ask for nine references. And so Harry lists all nine sitting justices on the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just love it. But then he decided that it would, there would be conflicts in arguing cases or being involved in cases where he had signed the legislation, this sort of thing. So he, he, he remained very active in politics. He campaigned uh, very hard for Stevenson again in 56 and uh, for Kennedy in 1960. He was no big fan of John Kennedy. Actually, it was his dad, Joseph Kennedy, that Truman couldn't stand. Um, but he campaigned very hard for Kennedy in '60. He had a fall in a uh, fall in the bathroom, uh, one of the uh, uh, perils of, of old age, and uh, and uh, hurt himself in 1964. And that pretty much began his his slow decline until mm-hmm. he died in 1972. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, income earning ventures, uh, really not not that much, mm-hmm. not that much. When did, uh, and you may not know the answer to this question, I I certainly do not, but uh, from the point that he left office and his approval ratings were 22% uh, Mm -hmm. positive or lower uh, to today, I mean, he's flipped. I mean, people now think of him as one of the the great presidents. I mean, I I don't know if he's up there there with Roosevelt, but clearly people esteem him very highly. When when did that happen? Well, it's funny because I think the uh, C-SPAN for President's Day this year did one of those rate the president's things, and he came number five. Yeah. it's, it's 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 hard to believe. It it really it, it 
took about 10 years, actually. And I would say by the mid-60s, you see uh, Arthur Schlesinger is beginning to do some of these rank the presidents. And you see Truman now is like number 12 or 13. And by the late 60s and 69, for example, he's number seven on the most admired men in America poll that Gallup does every mm-hmm. year. Uh, Nixon, for what it's worth, was number one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but there you see clearly his public perception is improving. Um, so it, it, it was fairly, I mean, really, in, it was fairly quick, um, the, the, the turnaround in, in, his, in his reputation. I mean, by the time he died, he was regarded as, as one of the better presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, his own theory was he had to be dead for 30 years before you could tell. <laughs> so, but actually, so for him, that was in 2002, we could start to finally uh, evaluate the Truman presidency. But, well, it's, uh, it's funny because, you know, there's large debate going on about, you know, the, these historians got together, I think, much to their shame. Um, and decided to uh, rate uh, modern presidents, including mm-hmm. the sitting president at the time, uh, uh, George Bush. Right. And, of course, George came off very, very badly. And I, and I couldn't right. really understand how these historians could, with any uh, degree of uh, certainty or confidence, m- make these judgments when we look at Truman and, and we realize that we, we really have no idea how it's going to turn out. I mean, yeah, it, we just don't know. Yeah, it's I, preposterous. I, I, um, I, it, there's, there's a thing I have at the end of the book where he's on the uh, – it, it was it, one of these things came out in the 60s, and it was – it was uh, published in the New York Times, and they actually have it on file at the at the Truman Library. His copy of this, and uh, uh, above himself, he, he scribbles, you know, on one of these rankings. Above himself, he scribbles not to be considered. <laughs> and he said he, he, he shouldn't. They shouldn't even be trying to evaluate where I am right. in the pantheon here. Yeah. So yeah, he was definitely. He would definitely, you know. And there's a lot of, you know, and uh, George W. Bush like to draw comparisons occasionally, and all politicians do to, to Harry Truman, but. I think Truman would be sympathetic to him in that regard, and like it's ridiculous. You just yeah. Too soon to tell. Again, I just don't. That, that you know, as as a member of the Guild of Professional Historians, I can say that I was a little bit ashamed by all of that. And a it parlor was, game. It was, yeah, it, it was worse than a parlor game. It was a political game, and mm-hmm. and and that they shouldn't have done it, but they did it, and that is their right. And I will defend it to the death. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Well, Matthew, we've taken up a huge amount of your time today, and we really appreciate it. It's very interesting to talk to you. Let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Actually, I, I, uh, I just sent in the contract uh, last week, uh, which means I should actually get the uh, advance check sometime in the next two years. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's going to be a book about a secret operation that was performed on Grover Cleveland, in 1893, and what happened was uh, Cleveland had a tumor in the roof of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be at the beginning of his second term, and the country was in a financial panic at the time. He was afraid if word got out, it would kill the stock markets, so the economy would collapse. So he had this tumor secretly removed during an operation on a boat that sailed from New York to Boston, mm-hmm. actually to Buzzards Bay, and uh, had most of his upper jaw removed and uh, replaced with a prosthetic device. And uh, he went for a month to recuperate, and nobody was the wiser. Then a reporter found out about it, a guy named E.J. Edwards. He reported it. Cleveland denied it. Talk about changing times. Back then, everybody believed Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So this reporter's reputation was ruined, and it wasn't until many years later after Cleveland had died that one of the doctors who took part in the operation uh, wrote a story for the Saturday Evening Post to vindicate this reporter whose uh, reputation had been ruined. So it's kind of a politics, science uh, medicine journalism in, in late 19th, early 20th century America. And a little bit creepy. Yeah, I well, mean, you, you know how I, how I found out about this one? There's a great museum in Philadelphia. It's called the Mütter Museum, M-U-T-T-E-R. 
and it's a museum of medical history. But they have the tumor in oh, a jar. Boy. Oh, boy. I hope and it goes on the cover. <laughs> I, I, I will pay whatever rights I have to pay for that picture. Yeah, I don't care. Exactly. We will get a copy of that picture. Well, yeah. We've been talking to Matthew Algio today. Um, um, about his new book, uh, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, The True Story of a Great American Road Trip. I'm sorry I'm still laughing, but that, I can just, I'm just I'm thinking about the picture of that tumor on the cover of the book. Oh, it'll really, get your attention. I really it'll get your attention. So anyway, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And I will, and, and, and I look forward to having you on the show when this next tumor book comes out, okay? <laughs> thank you, Marshall. All right. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Matthew Algio about his new book, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, the true story of a great American road trip. I hope that you have a good weekend. 